those kids are just adorable. Um, but in Mark 6, we're going to see something this morning uh, that, that I think is appropriate, not, not just for mothers, but for all of us as well. And it's on the screen, and you can read it, and it's that Jesus serves the needy and the servers. And uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, it's, it's probably better calculated that the number was around 15 to 20,000. Uh, we have recorded for us in all four gospel accounts this miracle. It's actually the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four. And Matthew includes this little tag-along statement after he writes that Jesus fed 5,000 men. He says this, plus women and children. And the word used for men is a word only used to, to describe the male gender. There are different words that could have been used that would have described more of a, a grouping of people. But every one of them agree that there was 5,000 men, but you add women and children in there, and you, you're getting up to fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus is feeding with five loaves of bread and two fish. And the big idea for us this morning is that Jesus serves the needy and the servers. And we're going to see some things in our text this morning about the character and the compassion and the grace of Jesus Christ demonstrated as he meets people's needs, the people that had physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. But he also serves the servers. And so for some of us, some of you that are putting in long hours serving away at the church, you're, you're serving others, you are involved in and really pouring your life out into the lives of other people, that's perhaps a great description of motherhood. That energy is not wasted. That energy in making disciples is not wasted energy. And that perhaps exhaustion that you feel may actually be a gift from the Lord to lead you to Him because He wants to serve you. And I want to unpack that for you moms and for us this morning and just ask that the Lord would come and meet with us in just a special way and minister to you. So can we pray together and we will ask Him those things and then hop in to our time Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for our moms. Thank you for the opportunities that, that we have had to, to be loved and, and, and cared for. Lord, thank you for our wives and the mothers of our children. God, we pray for just, a, just an outpouring of your grace in these women's lives that uh, they, they may get from you what they need to honor and glorify you in, in motherhood and in, and in life. And Lord, for the rest of us, we, we pray that you'd come and meet with us in the same way. Lord, we pray that in your grace you would expose to us our need and that we would draw near to you in that time. And so, Lord, we thank you for how Christ provides for our needs, for how you, through the Holy Spirit and by the Son, provide for our needs. Lord, help us to draw near. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there's a few things that I've noticed over the past six years of being a dad. Uh, I've been, been married about nine and a half, but six of those, I've, I've been a father. Uh, it's, it's, one of them is that Carrie thinks 
very differently than I think about the kids. And so she thinks through packing the diaper bag. She thinks through making sure all of that stuff that's supposed to be in there is in there. We have just-in-case bags that go along with us, just in case something happens. Uh, I'm the guy that gets halfway to Lowe's with two of my youngest, and I go, I didn't even bring the diaper bag. And then I'm just thinking the rest of the way, like, I really hope nothing happens. And it's a good thing Walmart's close because I can just go buy new diapers and wipes and we'll just get it done there. And, and it, she, she thinks differently. Uh, whether it's fair or unfair, our kids act differently. I don't know, husbands, wives, if you've noticed that, your kids may act differently with one than the other. Our, our kids are all a whole lot more whiny with mom than they are with me. And maybe some of that's because I just tell them, like, hey, you're okay. Get over it. And, and maybe that's like my favorite phrase right now for Tucker. I set him down. He starts whimpering. I'm looking at him and go, you're all right, buddy. And, and literally, he just goes, oh, okay. And he just, like, starts playing. And, and, like, Carrie tries that, and it's just, it just doesn't happen. Like, he's crawling up her leg and, and grabbing whatever he can to try to pull himself up onto her. They act differently. Uh, Carrie packs differently when we take trips. Uh, if we're going to go overnight somewhere, she's packing for at least four people. There have been occasions where she's packed for five, and it's not because we adopted somebody. She bears my weight into some of that as well. Uh, but she is packing for four people, and I get the responsibility of just making sure my undies get into the bag. And she's working everybody else's stuff to make sure they're covered as well. And there's some other things that I've noticed also, uh, and, and I'd love to think I'm learning more of these things and, and learning them in the right ways. Uh, but, but motherhood is demanding. And I'd like to think I'm learning more about the demands of motherhood as our family grows. And, and it's way more demanding now with three than it was with one. And there's obvious reasons for that. But motherhood's demanding. It's, it's exhausting. I'd love to think that I'm learning a whole lot more about the exhaustion of motherhood as our family grows. That I'm learning more about the selflessness of motherhood as our family grows. I mean, we're playing zone defense right now in our house, and a lot of you play that same scheme as well. It's no longer man-to-man where we each get a kid and just kind of do our thing. Uh, There's a selflessness, though, especially when she's one-on-three. But there's also days of frustration, and and that, as our family grows, grows in some ways proportionately, Uh, but the joy has grown as well. The joy has grown as well. And, and motherhood's demanding, it's exhausting, it's, it's selfless, it can be frustrating, and yet there's, there's just an, an intense joy that, that comes from it. And, and I think beyond even all those adjectives, perhaps a better one to summarize motherhood is I think the word serving or servant and I think about my mom and, and all that she did and poured into me and my sister. And I think about and just watch my wife and, and others of you that have children as well. And there is, a, there is a servanthood that is daily displayed with your children. And, and there's, there's something unique that happens when we consider servanthood as an aspect or an adjective as motherhood. And then we can actually now include all of us because we are all to be servants and serving one another. There are days where we don't have all that we need to serve well. There are days where maybe in our own strength we fall woefully short of the call that we have been given 
And there's this really, really unhelpful statement that has been made, and it's a twist of a very true statement, but it's this, God will never give you more than you can handle. I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's not true. It's a twist on a scripture that is true that says God will never give you more temptation than you can bear. But in your moment of temptation, he will provide a way out. See, we've taken what's true in regards to those moments where we face temptation. We've, we've over-applied it to just general life circumstances, and it's just not biblical because God often gives us way more than we can handle, so we have to draw near, and he can provide what we're lacking. And If you think about it, if you and I had everything we need, we don't need him, Right? And it's not like he's provided everything for our salvation and gone, hey, go. He's provided everything for our salvation and said, hey, I want to go with you. I want to lead you. I want to instruct you. I want to work in you and through you. And the scriptures bear weight to this. And we're going to look at some of these texts here this morning. My clicker is not clicking. All right, Tyler, it's on you. I don't know. Did I do that or did you do that? You did that? Well done. All right, so we've got, we've got Isaiah 57, 15. And th- this is in regards to salvation as the Matthew 5 is. The next two are not. The next two are just in regards to life. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So you see, where the Lord has said his dwelling place is, it's in the high and holy place. And it's with those who are lowly and contrite. And his purpose in that is to revive the spirit of the lowly in the heart of the contrite. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 2, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize I don't got it. I can't contribute anything to it. I bring nothing to the table in regards to my salvation. Those people are blessed. Those will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Tyler, go to the next one. We've got James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those who feel like they got it all together. Those who feel like, you know what, I can do it. You're actually standing against the purposes of God. He gives grace to those who are willing to recognize, I don't got it all together. Hebrews 4, next one, Tyler. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. See, there's something that's very true in the scriptures, and that's this, that we need to be needy. We need to be needy people. We need to be people who are willing to stand up and say, I don't got it all together. I need God's grace in my life. I need it more today than maybe I even did yesterday. I need Him. I need Him for my salvation, but I need Him for the grace and strength to love my wife well. I need Him for the grace and strength to love my kids well. I need Him for the grace and strength to serve my church well and to reach out to my neighbors well. I need Him. And without Him, I'm nothing. Paul in Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
He didn't say, I can do all things through me, who I find my strength in. I can do all things through Christ, who gives me strength. And so I don't know where, where this finds you, whether you're just, you're just serving in the church and you feel exhausted. And you're wondering where, where the break's going to come in, where the rest is going to come in. And, and maybe you're just trying to hack it on your own strength. And you're just trying to, you're just trying to white knuckle, grin and bear it. There's just another Wednesday coming. I'm going to go and I'm just going to do it. Maybe motherhood feels like that for some of you right now. And I think there can be an honesty in recognizing that, you know what, this may be a difficult season. This may be a, a difficult month. It, it, and there's nothing wrong with looking forward to when our Wednesday night ministries take a break and shift to a summer schedule. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We need to be needy people. We need to be needy. We need to be reliant on the Lord. Because Jesus serves the needy and the servers. And go to Mark 6. We're going to see this get played out. We'll start in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago, the apostles were sent out. Six pairs of two people. They were sent out. They were given authority to go and preach. They were given authority to go and cast out demons. They were given authority to minister in the name of Jesus. They did that. Mark records verses 7 to 13, in particular 12 to 13. They went out. They preached that people should repent. They cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now they've come back to Jesus and are reporting what went on. What they taught, what they did. And Jesus said to them, verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. See, there's nothing wrong with the need for rest. It's biblical for our bodies to rest. It's biblical for our souls to rest. It's even the the pattern of Jesus to pull away after long days of ministry and rest. And here you see him desiring to do this for his apostles. They had just spent however many days out ministering to people, traveling around as itinerant preachers. They come back to him and he wants to lead them to a place of refreshment and rest. There's a problem. Many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to eat. The crowd has pressed in once again around Jesus and his disciples. And it's not Jesus alone this time as it was in Mark 3 who had no leisure to eat. It is now all 13 of them who are unable to find any spare time in their day to even be physically refreshed. And so the plan is, verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. You think about this scene, it it had to in some ways be 
comical because Jesus and his disciples have pushed off from shore in the boat. They're, they're going from kind of the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee to more of the north central part of the Sea of Galilee. And they probably didn't set off into the, 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 the deep end or the middle of the lake. So their boat's obviously visible from the shore. And as people are watching them and the direction of their sailing, they just start running along the beach to get there. And they make it, and some make it before them. And it's, I don't think it was the whole complement of 15,000, 20,000 people, but can you imagine this, this throng of people and the, the really fast ones just running ahead and the not-so-fast ones kind of lagging behind, and they're, they're trying to get there to figure out where Jesus is because they want to keep pressing in. They want to keep having him meet the needs that they're bringing to him. And so we get to verse 34 when he, this is Jesus, went ashore. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You see here that Jesus serves the needy and the servers. Go ahead, Tyler. We'll go to that next one. This idea of Jesus being a shepherd and looking on these people and having compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd brings now to mind things that Jesus said about himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd. That's me. It's an I am statement from Jesus. Who am I? I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. Jump down a little bit. I am the good shepherd again. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see one, maybe two things. First of all, Jesus is the good shepherd. Secondly, you and I are the sheep he laid down his life for. Thirdly, the relationship and knowledge that Jesus has of us is the same as the relationship and knowledge that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit experience with one another. That's the just as statement he makes there. To the degree that the Father and Son know one another is to the degree that the Son knows us. I think he knows the needs that you have, the burdens that you carry, the weight that he would love to take off your shoulders. He knows all of it. And he knows it all perfectly. He is the good shepherd. He gets out of the boat. He looks upon the crowd. And rather than speak with annoyance because he had been trying to pull away, he looks at them with compassion. And he begins to teach them many things because they were sheep without a shepherd. Now that phrase, sheep without a shepherd in the Old Testament, is going to speak in regards to the lack of godly leaders in the lives of God's people. Oftentimes it's spoken of in reference to the lack of uh, the, the king doing what is right. And if you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you're just going to see this consistent pattern over and over and over again. This guy took over and reigned and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you kind of go a few and then you get a guy that this guy did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And some of those men were Hezekiah and Josiah and a few others, but there were 
were not many. The majority of Israel's kings after, after David reigned and through Solomon and the brokenness and the fracturing of the kingdom were evil men. Men that just didn't allow sin in the midst of God's people. Men that encouraged it. Men that built altars for people to go worship. Men that built altars for people to go sacrifice their children to the God Molech and the God Kamash. And and these were the leaders of God's people. They They were shepherdless sheep. Then there was prophets who for a price would tell you what you wanted to hear as opposed to what the Lord actually wanted to say. And then the priests, even at one point in Israel's history, uh, actually began and were commissioned to offer false sacrifices to other temples. One of the kings built a temple, and it was to the god of Assyria, and he then brought all of his priests to go and sacrifice there and took some of the utensils from the actual temple that Solomon had built and, and, and stripped the doors off and, and shut the whole thing down and went to a foreign god. It's a sheep without a shepherd. Leaderless people. And in the same way, the, the, the weight and responsibility of leading God's people has now been placed on elders and overseers in the church. And the scriptures say that, that, that we will give an account for what we do with your souls. We will give an account whether we begin telling you what you maybe want to hear as opposed to what you need to hear. It's a very dangerous, dangerous place when those who are supposed to be representative of the Lord and leading His people begin to care about what the people think more than what the Lord thinks. Begin to be shepherdless sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, and in some ways, in many ways, this even pulls to mind the next passage that Tyler's going to put on the screen for us, Psalm 23. We know this one well. Many of our children right now are memorizing this. The Lord is my Shepherds. David writing, he's a shepherd and he's thinking about all of the things that the Lord is to him. And this imagery of shepherd comes to mind. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's look at and think about some of the things that the Lord as our shepherd, Jesus as our good shepherd does. Tyler, click. The first is that we're going to see that he makes us lie down. The verbs in this Psalm 23 are fascinating. He leads to still waters. He's not told you to go find the water. He leads you to the water. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He restores your soul. He leads you in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Jump down a little bit. His rod and His staff that were used by shepherds to fend off the wolves or the bears or the lions, the, the threats to the flock. 
Those are a comfort. His, his shepherd crook that would be used by the shepherd to perhaps wring the neck of a sheep and bring them back to safety or, or pull them off of a cliff edge if they had fallen down. Those are a comfort. He prepares a table for us. He anoints our head with oil. This is the good shepherd. This is Jesus who is the good shepherd. And he looks upon these people, has compassion on them because they are sheep without a shepherd. And he begins to lead them. And he begins to do what Herod Antipas should have done as a man who had responsibility before God to lead the people well. Herod Antipas was the man, the the really depraved, evil man that we looked at last week who uh, was a ruler of a fourth of Israel at this point. So he wasn't a king in the sense of a monarch who reigned over everything, but he had a significant rule and authority over about 25% of the nation, and he was an evil man. And what he should have done was kept the law before the Lord. And kept the law before the people. What he should have done was made a copy of the law himself, as he was told to do from the Old Testament scriptures. But what's he more concerned with? Convincing his sister-in-law to divorce his brother so that she can marry him? Having his stepdaughter, grandniece, and niece, who are actually all the same person, immorally dance before him and please his friends? You think about being a sheep without a shepherd. These people had no shepherd. And way before Jesus meets the physical needs of the people by feeding them, what does he begin to do? He meets their spiritual needs. He begins to teach them many things. Mark doesn't record for us the content of what Jesus taught, but as he has done thus far, when Mark makes a statement like that about, well, they preached, or they taught, or they went to this place, and they preached and taught, he is taking us back and pointing our attention back to the the summary statement of the content of Jesus' sermon. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus brought before these people what they most desperately needed, even if they didn't know they needed it. Jesus serves the needy, and he serves the servers. He serves the needy even perhaps when the needy aren't even aware that they need serving. But Mark continues, verse 35, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I don't believe the disciples were just trying to push everybody away. I think their, their statement was perhaps compassionate in and of themselves, but to the degree and only to the degree that they understood. At this point in their journey, and it will be until after the resurrection when the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples are really, really good at seeing with their physical eyes and not having the spiritual eyesight to discern the other things that are going on. 
And we're going to see that next week when Jesus calms the storm. And they're just completely amazed by it because, once again, they just can't comprehend. It's physical, not spiritual. So I think in their compassion and their grace, they wanted the people to be cared for. They wanted those physical needs to be cared for after a long day of teaching and these people sitting in the hot Palestinian sun. Let's send them away. Let's get them, or let's get them to go and get something to eat. And Jesus' response had to stagger them. He says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, and one of the other accounts is actually going to tell us that this was Philip who said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A denarii was a single day's wage for a laborer. So we're talking two-thirds of a calendar year represented here as they calculated the sum that it would cost to feed these people. And we're probably only considering small, meager rations. I do not believe they were considering a feast. 38, Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five. And two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Isn't that one of the things the Lord does? He makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, we're not going to make that be everything it shouldn't be, but there's some, there's some similar language here. And he has them sit in groups by hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He broke the loaves, gave it to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate, and they were satisfied. You think about that. This wasn't wasn't just, hey, here's a couple saltine crackers to maybe help your stomach growl a little less. This was a meal that satisfied you think about the, the imagery of a meal throughout the scriptures. One is in the Old Testament, food uh, on repeat is declared to be a blessing from the Lord. I mean, Solomon, time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things he keeps coming back to in, in, in the midst of everything else being meaningless is enjoy food. Now, there's a line you can cross where you can enjoy food to a sinful level, but enjoy the fact that the Lord has given you the gift of food and savor that. Enjoy that. Be thankful for that. Think forward to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is actually prophesied of in Isaiah 25. There will be a rich feast of well-aged wine, of meat that has been well-seasoned and marinated in the marrow from the bone. It's the imagery, it's the language of Isaiah 25, and all nations are going to come and they're going to feast. And you think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. These were not meager rations, and this meal will not be a meager meal that we will enjoy. Now, how do we, as perfect bodies who don't need sustenance, enjoy food? I have no idea, but what we do know is it's going to be a meal we're talking about. It's going to be a meal worth celebrating because the picture is that the the king has completed and has set up his kingdom, which is reigning and never ending forevermore. 
And he has gathered the bride. And the bridegroom has now gathered the bride to himself. And it's time to party. It's one of the reasons why we have to celebrate our communion services in this way. Because that meal is a party. Because Jesus satisfies fully. He provides over and above what we need. He serves the needy and the servers. And even those who aren't even aware of their neediness, He serves. And then those who are woefully and painfully aware of their neediness, these men and women sitting on this countryside for a full day after running nearly eight miles, that's about the distance they traveled on foot when they were following the boat from the shore. It's about eight miles. And then they just sat down and they listened to the teacher teach, and they got hungry. And he supplied over and beyond what they needed, and he's satisfied. But notice one of the last things that Mark records. Verse 30 43. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Why is that important? I think that is very important because each one of those disciples had a basket they collected. These men who in the beginning of our account had come back from a long, weary journey of ministering and preaching to people. These men who had come back not having taken bread of their own. Not even taking money to go and buy bread. But relying on the grace and provision of the Lord through other people who they would stay with. Came back, were so pressed by the crowd, had no leisure to eat. They get in the boat, they go sail, the crowd follows them. Jesus starts teaching again. These men have still yet to eat. And it's not just the people on the hillside, the 5,000 men and the 10 to 15,000 women and children. It's the disciples as well. And Jesus used them to be the servers. And then at the end of it, the servers go and they collect all of that's extra. And they had way more than they needed each a full basket of bread and fish. Jesus serves the needy and the servers. And your energy spent in serving, your energy spent in pouring yourself out to others is not wasted energy. Your energy spent in glorifying the Lord by making disciples is not wasted energy. And those, those moments of exhaustion may even be the grace of God telling you to draw near because He wants to meet with you and do something really special in your life and minister to your soul in really profound ways. And He often does that and can do that through one another. It's one of the reasons why meeting together weekly is so desperately important because the Lord will use us to minister and serve to one another as He used the disciples to take the bread and the fish and give it out to others. But those who are serving, those who are pouring themselves out, perhaps those who are the first here and the last to leave, and those who are just, just laying their guts out for the gospel. It's not wasted energy. The Lord will serve you. He serves the needy, and He serves 
the servers. So I want to think through just real practically some of the ways that I think the Lord can serve us. Some of the ways we can even serve one another. One is, is just to, to have in your life times and patterns of quiet with and before the Lord. Times and patterns of quietness with and before the Lord. And, and to that, pick the time that works best for you. If you're not a morning person, don't pick the morning. If you're, if you're a midnight person, give the Lord the midnight hours when you're most fully attentive. Pick the time that works best for you and give Him your best. Give Him the most attentive moments that you have. Husbands, we may need to help our wives prioritize this. There may not be in their mind as they think through the calendar that time built in. And that's where we can step in and go, you know what, I got this. Let me, let me suffer through bath time tonight. You go and do something that's not related to washing children. We can, we can serve one another by helping one another prioritize this time in our lives. There, there is an appropriateness to the caring of physical needs as well. So that may be exercise for you. I, I feel far more refreshed after I go run five or six miles than I do if I'd have just sat on the couch. So I got to prioritize that. I got to get out and I got to spend that time running and sweating and, and just doing all of those things. And, and so that may be you. And there's certainly a degree of physical exercise that is, that is important for us as believers. But some of you aren't going to be high mileage people. And the idea of a, a 5K or even running at all, it just sounds like torture. And so you can care for your temple and you don't have to be a marathoner. But there's the importance of prioritizing the caring of physical needs. Some of you may just need a tall latte from Starbucks. Go get it. Go get it. Some of you may need a nap. Take it. I remember when, and this wasn't too far ago, and it was the same for all three of our kids. I mean, when they were little, like just infant, days old, weeks old, months old, um, one of the things Carrie just needed, maybe more than, than anything else from me, was a shower. Hey, I just want to take a shower. Haven't gotten to do that today. Can I go and shower? Can you kind of keep everybody alive? And there was, there was different people when, when I was, when Allegra was young, when Adelaide was young, that, that would even come over and, and, and just, just give her that time away. You know what, I, we're gonna, I'll stay downstairs with the kids. I'll, I'll play with them. We're going to keep everybody happy. You know what, you just go and you just take a shower. I mean, so certainly that can be unique to mothers with, with small infant children and the demands that an infant brings to the table. But it's just another example of where you can care for those physical needs and, and just minister to one another. How about getting away with friends? I love getting away with good friends. I love sitting down at the table, enjoying a meal together. I love telling stories. I love laughing. I, I, I love that. That nourishes my soul in unique and profound ways. I think it's one of the ways the Lord uses other people to, to minister to me. And so there's a, there's a rightness to prioritizing that time away with friends. 
And lastly, and it's certainly not the least, it's probably worth leading off with, but we're going to finish with it. You've got to spend time in God's Word. And not just words about God's Word. Okay, devotional books are, are, are helpful to the degree that they faithfully communicate the Scriptures. And there are some that do that way better than others, and there are some that don't even get close, that meet and make it into the devotional category in the Christian bookstore. But read the Word of God. Not just words about the Word of God. Because those words about His Word aren't living and active. The words about His Word isn't the double-edged sword. The words about His Word aren't what's imperishable, aren't what will return void, aren't what restores the soul. It's His Word. Those words aren't lamps unto your feet and light unto your path. It's His Word. Those words aren't going to keep you from sinning. It's His Word hidden in your heart that keeps you from sinning. Spend time with Him and His Word. Far better than time spent in words about His Word. It's one of the reasons why the, the priority of the Scriptures at our gathering times has to be high. Because in the end of the day, in the end of eternity, everything that's just simply built up on the words of man are going to burn. There's going to be no foundation. They're just going to burn like chaff. But everything built on the foundation of God's word is going to stand the test. So spend time in God's word. Spend time in the Old Testament. Spend time in the New. And, and be, be careful to not, to not err in thinking that the red letters in your Bible are more of the word of, Lord, of the Lord than, say, James's epistle that he wrote. Be careful there. Because there can be a temptation to think, well, Jesus' half-brother James wrote this, or Peter wrote that, but these are the words of Jesus. Well, they are. But all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is useful. All Scripture will equip the man or the woman of God for every good work. That's all 66 books, folks. That's every word. The big ideas and the sentences and the words, that's what we believe about the inspiration of God's Word. Put your time there. We need to be needy. We need to be needy people. We need to be people that are willing to acknowledge our need before the Lord, to acknowledge our need before one another, to acknowledge the fact that, hey, you know what? Can you, can you come over and pinch hit for me right now? I just want to shower. Let's be those people. Let's be people that draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jesus serves the needy and the servers. And he's really good at it. And what he gives satisfies.